Hello, friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Beer Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Penizzato, here as always with the good doctor, Mr. Mike Roman. Hey, folks, today we're going to bring you a very timely topic. We're going to be talking about broadhead sharpening with Ron Swartz. He's the owner of KME Sharpeners. He invented the product. I would certainly describe him as an expert sharpener, something I am definitely not. And this is, as I say, a timely discussion as we are either already hunting in some parts of the country or about to be, which is pretty cool. It's that time of year. So time to be talking about these topics. Let's say hello to a man that is rehearsing his favorite rain dances, the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. Now I see you thinking, he's like, where's he going with that? Why is he doing rain dances? Well, because you know that I don't have seed in the ground yet. That's why I need, and I need rain. So I, I got you there, but actually we had rain last night, uh, but I was not fully prepared to put anything in the ground because it's just light stuff. And then we're going to hit a streak of 80 degree days. So that to me just was not the time to go. Well, we're going to talk after the interview a little bit more on some food plot stuff. I've, I've been lucky with rain. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I think you don't have to know anything about growing things, but if you get rain, it'll probably grow. So I've had some luck with that. We'll talk about that, though, after the show. But uh, yeah, it's definitely that time of year where you see people talking about, hey, I got seed in the ground and now it hasn't rained for two weeks. And you got other people that had so much rain that it washed their seed away and everything in between. It's always a bit of a gamble. Uh, but it's a labor of love. And so if it doesn't work the first time, we find ways to do it again. So we'll talk about that. But hey, let's go ahead and jump right into the show. Let's go ahead and bring Ron in and learn a little bit about the art of broadhead sharpening. Ron Swartz jo- joins us here on the Coffee and Deer podcast. He's the owner of KME Sharpeners. Uh, I actually first met Ron at least 15 years ago, maybe more. Uh, this was at Denton Hill. Uh, Ron, I mentioned this to you and we talked on the phone, probably somewhere around 2007 or so. And you were there in the in the tent. This is the Potter County Bowhunter Festival. And for those of you who are unaware, it's just a, it traditionally was a giant uh, they had a traditional fest, uh, archery festival and then a regular one later on uh, up in the mountains of Pennsylvania. And it would draw people from several states away. Just a really big deal. You'd camp out, you shoot bows, and there were vendors there. And that's where I saw Ron and KME Sharpeners for the first time. And I bought a sharpener from you there, Ron, and I still use it to this day. And with this being the time of year when people should be focused on having sharp broadheads, sharp hunting knives, and whatnot, we thought this would be the perfect time to invite you on to talk about sharpening. So thanks for coming on, Ron. And uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Ah, no problem, man. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Denton Hill, ah, those were good days, huh? Excellent traditional shoot. Excellent traditional shoot. Thousands of people. That was a great show. I guess now they're combining that and sawmill into a smaller one now. It's kind of, kind of disappointing, but... It is what it is, right? Yeah, everything changes. Yeah. We we could see it getting smaller even all those years ago. I think at one time they said they'd have what six or seven thousand people come to that thing, and but uh, glad to hear they're still doing something oh, yeah. anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, yeah, that's funny that you got. Uh, did you buy a broadhead sharpener or a knife sharpener? I bought a, a broadhead sharpener. Oh, okay. 
yeah, those uh, we're still selling them today with mm, virtually no change. I mean, there's a slight adjustable angle uh, feature that we added, but otherwise it's still the same as, as they were back then. And uh, how that whole thing got started <laughs> was, I, I don't know about you, but I'm old enough to remember when there was no such thing as a compound bow. Yep. And we were shooting, you remember Rocky Mountain Razorheads? Oh, yes. Yep, definitely. <laughs> and I'm shooting those. My buddy's shooting traditional Magnus twos, And uh, we're like, I'm buying replacement blades. And in the pack, some brand new replacement blades. Some of them are sharp and some are not. So you're trying to put like two good blades and one iffy blade in each head. I'm like, this is just crazy. So uh, I just started messing around. Very first AME broadhead sharpener was a block of maple with two drywall screws in it just to hold the replacement blade. <clears throat> it ended up working pretty good. And my buddy said, for his magnuses, hey, make me something. I'm like, okay. And then once we got done, it's like, hey, this thing actually works pretty good. Maybe something else would and that's that's how it got started. Our very first public appearance was at Dagnet Hill years ago. As far as introducing yourself, I wanted to ask you where you're from and to, a little bit about your hunting background because you were messing with broadheads. Obviously, you're into archery hunting. Oh God, yes. I'm, I am uh, 62 years old uh, from the People's Republic of New Jersey, comrade. <laughs> <laughs> but all the way in the very northwest corner, we have. I have deer and black bears and turkeys in my yard all the time and uh, grew up hunting as a kid, you know, and uh, yeah, I mean, I played some sports, wrestled a little bit, played a little bit baseball, but otherwise, every free minute I was in the woods, I was hunting, fishing, trapping, whatever, and it just turned out that by like the time high school was over, I was the local guy that could sharpen, you know. And everybody brought their stuff to me. And finally, I'm like, you know what? Here, take this and do it yourself. <laughs> you know? But yeah, that that's basically it. You know, I'm just, I'm not a college educated engineer or anything. I spent my life as a frame carpenter. And then later in life, uh, custom furniture and cabinetry, which are, you know, there's a lot of sharpening going on in those industries too. So it just surely by chance became, you know, that I was the sharpening guy. It was never my intention at all. Well, it's certainly a skill, and I know I'm not any good at it, but Mike, Mike, are you pretty good at sharpening stuff? Actually, I am. I And again, I, that sounds like too overly cocky and confident, but as as you, you should know, for as meticulous as I am, that yes, it took me a long time to learn how to do it correctly and to do it well, because this is a, it is a skill. It's something that's learned. And, um, but now that I understand how it needs to be done i'm actually really really good at it yeah so, mike correct me if i'm wrong sharpening this is what i always say sharpening is 90 percent knowledge and only really 10 percent skill it is it is because there's uh and i'll let you explain this you know because that's what we brought you on the show for but um but knowing exactly how to go through the steps um pressure angles and, and with you know the KME I have the self-adjusting broadhead sharpener so that kind of um, does a lot of that work for me but 
you really need to have that consistent edge, but know how to literally fold that edge back and forth, or, or I shouldn't say fold, curl that edge back and forth until you come up with your your final product. And that does take a lot of understanding and practice and the right tools. The right tools. That's that's where typically people go wrong. I don't I don't care if you're sharpening a knife or a broadhead or a lawnmower blade. It's all the same. Or or a chisel, woodworking tool. It's all all sharpening is the same. You know, if we uh well it could be a broadhead or it could be a knife, but if you pick, picture a a dull edge in cross section. It's it's a V shape, but it's not a pointed V shape. It's rounded over or flattened off or something, right at the at the apex, and that that's not going to cut. Now the only way we can create recreate the sharp apex in in intersection of the two bevels, well defined sharp cutting edge. The only way you can do that is to remove steel. Right? right, right. We have to change it from a rounded over shape back to a well-defined V, and that means taking material off. It may only be a few thousands, but you know, broad edge knives. We're talking a few thousands of hardened steel, and it's a little bit of work. <clears throat> so, uh, the biggest mistake I see people use do over and over and over for twenty years is trying to remove material with a really fine stone with a polishing stone, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? You have to start coarse because you cannot polish an edge sharp. You, you, have to, you have to remove some material and that requires a relatively coarse stone, at least at the beginning, to get a burr, you know? Uh, and on, as far as the burr goes, if we want to talk about that, I don't want to just run on here. Feel, got, feel free to jump in and cut me off if I, if, uh, you know, if you want to back up and, now nah, keep rolling. Detail, this but, sounds good. This yeah. all sounds good. Keep rolling. Any, anything I see, like I said, if you have, you know, I'll, I'll just roll on. So, <clears throat> but uh, the burr, why, why do we have to get a burr? Everybody knows we have to get a burr, but why do we have to get a burr? Does anybody know the answer to that? Well, so before we, we talk about the answer, let's talk about, and again, so I am going to back you up a little bit because you're starting to use terms that somebody might not understand, like about a polishing stone versus more of a coarse stone. So let's let's back up, and I'm going to write down that okay. we're going to get back to burr, but let's back up and let's talk about the all of the basic materials that someone would need to start, and then um, as we move through like the materials, then you can let's jump back into. Uh, a dull or a, a chipped blade where we actually have dull or missing material or metal and then get into how we're, you know, why we're going to talk about and why that burr is so important. Right. Right. Okay. Well, as far as tools, uh, that's kind of subjective because to sharpen, uh, say a, a thin replacement blade. I'm not going to name a brand, but you know what I'm talking about. A typical modular head replacement blade. That's a thin blade. And unless you shot that in the ground a bunch of times, it shouldn't require anything really coarse to, because it's just a thin blade. There's not that much material that has to be removed. Versus say, now I am going to, I'm going to say like a Magnus or a Zwicky, uh, traditional glue-on type heads. Those come out of the pack. Man barely ground 
though. So for that type of blade, you would need something really nasty coarse just to get the bevel set and finish the factory grind. So it's not like uh, whatever you're going to sharpen, regardless of what it might be, you need this stone, this stone, this stone, this stone. Uh, it's, it depends on your, your level of sharpness or lack thereof is probably a better way to go about it. Generally, the duller the blade, the coarser the stone you need, you know, and the right. more time it will take. So on that, on that, I, I mean, di- just talking about stones briefly, diamonds, diamonds really shine on the beginning steps of sharpening. Mm-hmm. Well, you have to remove material. Diamonds are awesome. Like an extra coarse diamond will cut down on your sharpening time. I, I call them time, sweat, and cuss savers because they'll get you from zero to 60 <laughs> in no time. You know, but uh, but then on the finer end, your ceramics and your Arkansas and, and you know, more natural stones, they are far superior to diamonds for putting the finished polish on. So it's really a question of what am I sharpening and what do I need for that? And and like I said, as a general rule, the duller it is, the coarser the stone you need to get just to get started. So let's yeah. let's kind of. Um wrap that up and then we'll get back let you get back to burrs here so basically you know what sure. ron was talking about is that you know when you certain manufactured blades that have a heavy or a high amount of steel historically you know for traditional archers etc someone that's using a very heavy um steel broadhead a lot of times like when you pick it out of the package it's not hunt ready most of them are not and i don't know of any company i can name off the top of my head that are and so as the archer you're going to have to sharpen that and make that hunt ready a lot of the manufactured uh, blades the mechanicals etc they're going to come out what i would call in my opinion in my opinion almost hunt ready but a lot of people hunt with those at that point i still tend to sharpen those uh as well and with all of those that I've previously mentioned, as you begin to take your number one arrow in and out of your quiver, every time that you go hunting and insert it back into foam or whatever else it might be, that begins to dull. So there's the point of where you might need to retouch up with the polishing stone like ceramic throughout the season just to keep that razor sharp edge. So, so Ron, let's get back to burrs. Yeah, yeah. Before we... Uh... Uh, go to birds. Let's talk about sharpeners in general, whether it's mine or someone else's, any kind of fixture, sharpener, guided sharpener. It's really designed to do one thing and one thing only. And, and that is to maintain that consistent angle throughout the sharpening process. And, and we all know that that's very important, but there's also a whole lot more to sharpening than just that, which is what I was getting at with your, you know, assess your edge. If it's really dull, you need a, of course, stone. If it's kind of sharp already, you might get by with just a strop, you know. But my general rule of thumb is I'll assess the edge, you know, for sharpness, and then I'll pick what I think is the appropriate stone. And honest to God, man, I give myself two minutes. And if in two minutes I didn't see significant improvement, that's telling me that I picked the wrong stone, put it down, and get something coarser. Because I want that burr as fast as possible. You know, we have to reshape that edge. So it's, it's, it starts like that. You know, you can have a few stones. If you think maybe it doesn't need the coarse one, all right, start on a medium. 
But if you go a couple minutes, you're not getting anywhere. That's what's telling you. Okay, you're undergunned. All right. Well, I was. I want to. I'm going to clarify again because uh, I want to make sure that we don't lose anybody because this is something that Nick and I both believe is very important. So you mentioned a strop, and so the word you know for stropping, some of you do know, but for those who don't, is a way that you can actually put literally a shaving sharp edge on a blade by taking it across leather as the final step. So that's that's what Ron refers to strop. That's what he's talking about. Yes, or or a piece of plain old brown corrugated cardboard, hmm. like the the flap off a cardboard box. I have been telling everybody for years: cardboard, plain brown corrugated cardboard works so well for a strop. I wish I could sell it. Now I've seen that nope. in, on the internet, Ron. So when you talk about running it across cardboard, do you add any polishing compound to it, or you just run it right across the cardboard? I don't. It's already a micro-abrasive. If you rub your hand across a cardboard box, I mean, we pick up cardboard boxes all the time. We don't pay that close attention. But rub your fingers across it, you'll feel it. It's micro-abrasive. So I generally do not use any compound on cardboard. And the cool thing about cardboard is you can't beat the price. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. And And no matter where you are, no matter where you are in the world, there's a piece around somewhere. You know, you could be in a spike camp. 20 miles from the nearest road, and there's going to be a piece of cardboard there that you can stop on. Yeah, so I'm, I'm real fond of stopping. And as you were talking about putting your uh, blades in and out of the quiver, did they mm-hmm. get dull? Yeah, a lot of that is really oxidation, and it's just like rust on a, on a gun barrel or anything else. It begins as a superficial deposit on top of, on the surface of the material. So you still have a sharp edge under there. It's just being obscured by little molecules of um, oxidation. So a quick strop in and bam, right back, just like that, you know? Versus if you shoot it in the ground, yeah, then you gotta go back to a rock for sure, back to a a sharpening stone. A lot of people are using sandpaper these days with glass, the, the, Airy sharp system, as it's called, Autom- automotive sandpaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a wet try. For the life of me, I can't figure out why they call it wet try because if you use it dry, it just immediately clogs. You got to use water. But that's another alternative, you know. And then there's countless grits that you can get in that, you know. But uh, but that automotive sandpaper is not cheap either. You start going through sheets of that, it's like man, I should have bought a stone. <laughs> but anyhow. Uh, as far as the burr, if you want to, uh, are we ready to move to the burr? Yeah, let's let's move through the burr, and I think Nick then has a question for you. Okay, all right. So the question is, everybody knows we need to raise the burr, but why do we need to raise the burr? And the answer is because the burr is the physical sign that tells us bevel A and bevel B have come to a full and complete intersection. And you have a perfectly well-defined apex there. And you cannot get a burr until those two bevels come together. And what, what happens is it's like bevel A, you take some material off, bevel B, you take some material off, they're coming closer, closer, closer. Eventually, they hit an apex. And then once they hit that apex, the metal doesn't come off on the stone like it was prior. Now it starts to curl around the edge. And that's your... Ding, 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 jackpot. You know, I got the burr. 
this is as good as over with right now. And and it, honest to God, no matter what grit you're on, if you lightly take the burr off, even with 100 grit stone, uh, you should be able to shave hair with it right then mm. and there. Mm. Right then and there. So it's what I'm getting at is when those two bevels come together and create the apex, that cutting edge is too small for the human eye to see. Mm-hmm. We need to keep going until there's a burr because that we can detect. And that's that's the, like I said, that's the the jackpot. Okay, it's all over but the shouting now. And again, that's why we want to use the coarsest thing we can get our hands on in the beginning, you know, within reason. You wouldn't use a double extra coarse diamond on a little replacement blade, but uh, but yeah, that's it. And then once you have that, you know, your first stone, I always equate it to woodworking, and I, because I'm a woodworker, some people will get this, some people won't. Your extra coarse and your coarse stones, your diamonds, uh, that's your router and your table saw. It does a dramatic, it makes a dramatic change to the shape of the cutting edge. The moment you get the burr and you move to the next stone and the next stone and the next stone, everything after that is just sandpaper. The only thing your your first stone has to actually change the shape of your blade, make it back to well-defined V, sharp cutting edge. And then every stone after that, the only job that second stone has is to take out the scratches that the first one put in. And the third stone takes out the scratches that the second one put in. So you spend as much time as it takes with your core stone to get that burr. And once you have that, then you just blow through your other grits, you know, not more than a minute a piece. Just zip, 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 because all they have to do is polish. You know, they don't have to actually remove stock. Yeah. And then what's happening at, at the cutting edge at that point is, <clears throat> like say we, like I said, we have a shaving sharp edge, but it's 100 grit or 140 grit, you know. You feel it, and it feels almost like the old file sharpened edge or the or a carbide pull-through edge where it's just all these little teeth hanging off the blade, microscopic teeth, and you run your finger across there, and they're like, don't push, don't push, I'll cut you, you know? And then as you go to finer stones and finer stones, those teeth keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller and finer and finer. I always say it's like your core stone, if you could look at your blade underneath a microscope, it would look like a bow saw blade. Hmm. And then medium, it's going to look like a wood saw, hand saw blade, you know, finer teeth. And then once you get to really fine, it'll start looking like a hacksaw blade. Those teeth are so tiny and they're so well supported, you know, that uh, it's it's a much more durable edge than the than the carbide or pull through or you, or your even your original extra coarse edge that you created with stones. So, Ron, let me ask you this but, question. Yeah. Um, because and I've seen some of the microscopic views of the edges of knives and blades, and it's incredible it's the things you can't see with the naked eye. And you describe some of them. But let me ask you this: This is a very practical question. Sure. So, uh, and we'll just use I, I hunt. I'm going to ask you a sp- specific question about this broadhead in a minute. But I shoot Magnus Black Hornet broadheads. Okay. Okay. And so, let's say I went out and I shot a deer tonight. And then, okay, I bring that broadhead home, I clean it up, and I, I take it to you, and I say, Ron, can you get this sharp again for me? Just take us through the, the, the steps, start to finish, when I hand you that broadhead. Your Magnus, is that a four-blade or a, a two? It's, uh, it's got two main blades and two little bleeder ba- blades. And two little bleeders, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. 
Have you ever had a pass through where the deer did not react? Uh, I have. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've had it happen right. where I shot through the deer and it ran a short distance and was looking around and then just fell over. <laughs> so exactly. Yeah, I've, I've been in, in a pretty unique position all these years because I constantly coach people on sharpening broadheads and knives and whatnot. But I always ask the guys with broadhead sharpening, let me know how was your blood trail. You know, I'm I don't care about antlers. What we want to know is how was the blood trail. Because killing a deer is not all that difficult, but that's not the goal. We got to get them in the truck. The, you know, if you have a, a literally straight razor sharp broadhead, the blood trail from that now, all things being equal, will be awesome. You know, should be completely awesome. However, the recipe is shot placement, penetration, and sharpness, and you need all three. I'm not going to tell you the sharpest broadhead in the world is going to help on a gut shot. It might, but, you know, not not much. You know, shot placement is everything. And then two holes always bleed better than one. But there's, uh, going just on the sharpness point of it, there's a reason when we nick ourselves shaving that it just doesn't stop bleeding. Hmm. And it's, it's because that blade is so sharp, it just cuts those <clears throat> capillaries so cleanly, like cutting off a garden hose. They're, they can't clot. They have difficulty clotting. I don't want to go into whole physiology of uh potting agents thrombin and prothrombin and all that but it's it's definitely true yeah so in in that case going back to your original question let's say same thing pick up your broadhead assess it for sharpness pick what you think is the right stone and give yourself no more than two minutes you know and you should have a burr and you should be able to just zip 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 it through like, like I said, hopefully that thing still shaves your arm after you pick it up. But uh, not no. always, of course. We had heavy, if you hit heavy bone, that's going to definitely damage a blade. Or the arrow goes into the ground. Yeah, the arrow goes through the deer right, and right. into or the, the ground. Goes into yeah. the ground on the other side. That's excellent penetration. If you can go through and still stick in the ground, yeah, <laughs> that's real good. So you're going to go from there then, just you, you, you go with the heavy stone. You're going to, like, I think one of the keys you said is don't spend more than two minutes. And I think that's where my problem is. I get on there and I just start going and going and going. And the next thing you know, it's like a half hour. And I wonder why. My broadhead's not sharp, so you're going to use right, that heavy right, stone right. and just keep right. polishing it down, right? Tw two minutes to start, maybe a minute right. each well, on like the finer. Right. Take your, um, like, like I say, assess your head. How how badly dull is it? Is it just right back to completely blunt, where we got to go all the way back to an extra coarse diamond, or is it still pretty sharp but just needs touched up? You know, in which case you would pick your, like, say, a medium grit stone. And give it two minutes. And then, mm -hmm. then if two minutes, you're not getting anywhere, you don't have a burr yet, then that's telling you, nope, that's not the right stone. Back up and get something coarser. You know, it's the same uh, same theory, same progression, regardless of whether it's brand new out of the pack or whether you just pick it up off the ground, you know, after, after a shot. I have one more question about that particular broadhead, because the ones I'm shooting sure. are serrated. And so okay, how important do you think it is? in addition to sharpening the main edge to try to get in there and sharpen those serrations? I don't think it's important at all. They're, they're, they're not, they're not doing much. The, uh, the corners of the main blade where the serration dips in, those are cutting. So if you sharpen the main blade, you know, it's, it's that 
So your your serrations are like little U-shaped divots in the blade, and at the top where where they terminate into the main blade, those corners right there, that's what's doing the cutting on a serrated blade. Plus plus the main cutting edge as well. But I wouldn't worry too much about getting inside those uh, their serrations at all. Yeah, I saw it. I saw there's a, a guy on the internet that was sharpening those and he set himself up a little tool where it literally is just a piece of um, pretty heavy duty string and he put some polishing or buffing compound on it and was working between those serrations. And yeah, uh, was, you, you could, yeah, you could definitely do it. It's, it's certainly not going to be uh, detrimental, but I, I would say, you know, if we're sharpening a knife and it takes 15 minutes, no big deal. If we're sharpening a pack of broadheads, say six or even three, that's that's three broadheads is at least six blades. Hmm. So now time, I don't want to spend all afternoon sharpening broadheads, you know. So that's why, again, we just like the coarsest stone you own is, or the coarsest stone is the most critical in any progression. Just like I said, just to get you from zero to 60 quick and then you can quickly polish out after that i was going to ask you what are the most common mistakes you see people make with sharpening uh using too fine of a stone mm. and spending a half hour with it you know it's like yeah exactly that is and the, and the other one is going back to the burr there's so much information on the internet man but so much of it is bad i feel so <laughs> so bad i do I feel so bad for somebody like a young guy that's just coming up and trying to learn and go into the internet because man, he is going to get led all kinds of wrong directions, you know, before he finally figures it out. The burr. We only need to get the burr once on the very first stone and never again after that. Again, going back to why do we need to get the burr? The only reason we need to get the burr is to tell us that bevel A and bevel B have reached a full complete intersection. You know, there's no flat on the end anymore. Boom. So once we got that, we got that. And you don't have to, I've seen guys, <clears throat> you have to get a burr on one side and you flip it over and you get a burr on the other side. And then you go to your next stone and do the same thing again. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, you don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, so I, 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 I just say, you know, everyone should have probably three grits of stones. Even yeah, three grits of stones, and one of them is a is an extra coarse diamond, but that's kept on the side for emergencies, you know, for when stuff's really bad. And you, like I said, you pick which one you think is right, and give yourself a couple minutes. If you're not getting anywhere, that's telling you something. Telling you, you didn't, we don't we didn't pick the right stone. Back up, go coarser, and we'll get a burr in seconds rather than minutes, you know. Now you've been talking about sharpening in terms of time. So you say like a couple minutes, but what does that mean in terms of how many passes? Are you just sort of going back and forth with that? And you know, how, what's that oh, process? You want, you want your, uh, your Magnus Hornet, right? Yep. Take the, take the bleeders out, take the bleeders out. And I'm trying to remember the Hornet. I know it's a compact Delta style head, but does the ferrule come way up to the close to the tip to where you can, if you try to match the factory bevel, you end up hitting the ferrule. It does. Yep. Yeah. So in that case, you'd probably want to take that blade out mm-hmm. and use the straight jaws, you know, and just, but anyway, I'd chuck up a broadhead set, you know, color the bevel with a magic marker, Sharpie, whatever. 
get your angle adjusted correctly or close to correctly, or better to be a little too high where you're taking ink off the cutting edge, but maybe not necessarily the full face of the bevel, than to be too low where you're taking it off the shoulder and the cutting edge isn't even touching the spoke. The other thing that has been coming up with lately is, and I have yet to find anyone that can give me a, a sound argument as to why, but, you know, broadheads, we know how many different broadhead options are out there for people. And they, broadheads come with angles from 18 degrees, 20 degrees, 22, 25, 28, 30, 32, 35, 40. Don't you think if there was an excellent optimum bevel for broadheads that everyone would be using it? For why sure. why do we have so many what the question is why do we have so many different factory bevels if one was better than the other mm-hmm. and the reason i bring that up is because i sharpen everything with a micro bevel say a broadhead or a knife is 20 degrees uh i will sharpen it at 22 because i'm sharpening the edge not the bevel and there is no no downside only pluses to a micro bevel the edge you create is going to be stronger, absolutely more durable. A higher angle is always more durable than a, than a lower angle. <clears throat> you need to take less material off your broadhead, so that means you can sharpen it a zillion times, and it gets done so much faster. You know, that those are three pluses, and I have yet to have anyone give me a good reason why we should match the factory bevel. So that's a that's a real big one for me. Uh, I get it all the time. I can't match the factory bevel. Why are you trying to? <laughs> you know? Well, I Again, guess what it's... you can do is you can equate it to uh, very similar to a rifle. You know, the the actual mouth of the muzzle where the bullet comes out is is literally the most dangerous point of a rifle, dangerous location on a right. rifle. And what you're saying is, and which I agree with, is the most dangerous spot on that broadhead is the very tip of that v or chevron that's doing the cutting work a lot of the other stuff i think is is marketing to kind of attract the the purchaser the buyer's eye and but the the business end or the business point of every broadhead is the full length at the very apex of that cutting edge absolutely right it's the most critical part that's that's the part that's sharp that's the part that does the damage, you know, that causes the hemorrhaging and everything behind it is just support structure. So that's, that's my take on matching the factory bevel on a broadhead. Now I will qualify that because with single bevels, you want to be a little bit closer, a little bit closer, but it's even then I will color the bevel, you know, because the bevel on a single bevel is much wider than it is on a double bevel. Hmm. Yeah, good point. You agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because because you definitely, what we did with a single bevel is we just ground it like a chisel from one side all the way through to the other. Well, that creates a much wider surface area of your bevel itself, not the cutting edge, but the bevel, than if you went half from one side and half from the other. Mm-hmm. So what I'm getting at is when you're sharpening a single bevel, there's a lot of material that has to be removed over a much wider area. So you want to be a little bit closer there, <clears throat> but still, 
I'll color that. And I want to see the ink is gone from the cutting edge and maybe halfway up the bevel. Because within a few strokes, it's, it's your broad edge is, you know, you're excavating <clears throat> material from the edge. And so every time you do a thousandth or two at a time, that broad edge is dropping, dropping, dropping. And within a few strokes, you'll be taking the ink off the whole bevel. So, but, but normally speaking, I always, I always use a micro bevel. Always. Just be, just for speed, accuracy, and strength. Strength. And, and, and like I say, you can sharpen a broadhead with a micro bevel 20 times and never take a grain off. Hey friends, Nick Pinizzato here to tell you about the Furminator by Renews Outdoor Equipment. When I convinced my wife to buy hunting land, I didn't tell her about this little list I was keeping of must-haves to help me manage it. Eventually she caught on and said if she'd have known about the add-ons, I probably wouldn't have land. Anyway, on the top of my list was the Furminator, which I use for all my food plot work, including disking, seeding, and call to packing. I have no idea what I'd do without mine, and I love it. The all-in-one food plot tool comes in several sizes, ranging from a 4-foot ATV model, which I have, up to an 8-foot tractor model that also includes a rototiller. For more information, visit theferminator.com. The Furminator, the best food plot implement on earth. So Ron, let's let's give the the new sharpeners a little bit of knowledge here. So we've been talking about a lot of good information, and you've stressed about how important that burr is, that establishing of that burr, so that you know, okay, I have a sharp edge underneath here. I just need to finish knocking this burr off. Is there something that tells you, like whether it be sound, feel, a way that you can test, so that uh, someone that doesn't really have a lot of experience with it, this knows that they've they've finally established the burr. Is there okay. something that you can yeah. give yeah. them that they can take home? Yeah, yeah. If you have a burr, first of all, when we get a burr, you know, uh, whatever side of the blade you're working on the stone, the burr will come up on the opposite side, right? You're right. You with me, right? We're using a yep. broad edge sharpener. So the blade that we're sharpening, the bevel that we're sharpening is down on the stone. The burr will come up on the side that's up, right? Right. And what I want to do is just pull my fingers straight out from underneath there. And as I come off the edge, I kind of curl, curl up a little bit. And I just want to feel a slight raggedness. You know, if it comes off, if your fingers come out from under there and it's smooth as a baby's butt, you don't have a burr. Right. And uh, <clears throat> you also want your burr at the tip in the middle, in the heel. And sometimes it'll come up at one end or the other, but not on the other end yet. And so you just keep going, keep going until that burr runs the full length. Now, you don't have, we don't have to keep going until there's this big hooked piece of steel over, hanging over the side, you know. <clears throat> All Like I said, I just want to feel a little raggedness. And for people who don't, haven't experienced one, haven't got it really set in their mind, that yes, I can identify a burr, Take a Q-tip or a cotton ball and drag it out from underneath that edge, and those fibers will catch if there's a burr. Hmm. Right, right. And you're pulling it out perpendicular to the cutting edge. And, you, and like I say, you check the tip, you check the center, you check the heel. And and that is a surefire way, surefire way. But a cotton ball or a Q-tip, those those really fine fibers. I've seen guys do it with a like a flannel shirt, too, that's got a lot of fuzz on it. Yeah, that's perfect. That's, that's, a, that's a real good way for someone who doesn't know, who just immediately know. 
Thank you. That's perfect. That's exactly what I was looking for because, you know, I think that's where a lot of people struggle that they don't know where they're at in the process of establishing their final edge and that that should be helpful. Right. And if you, you know, when, when you're sharpening a broad edge, if, you know, before you really get going, feel, feel the edge, you know, pull, check for a burr when you know there is none and get to know what that feels like. Like I said, it'll just feel like smooth as a baby's butt. Like there's nothing there on that edge. And then as you progress, progress through your stones a little bit, a little more, a little more, eventually like, oh, that's starting to feel a little bit different. You know, that's a really good way to, to, to gauge it as well. And then, like I said, if you have any doubt, grab a cotton ball, Q-tip. Once a person has seen a burr, felt a burr, and the light bulb has gone off in his head, then he doesn't need a Q-tip anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, Ron, I got one more question for you, and I think then we're going to start to wrap it up here. But talk about pressure as you're you're progressing your way through your sharpening process, because I think right, um, pressure is a, a very important thing. Pressure is an important thing. And uh, there's a tendency for people <laughs> to kind of want to put their back into it, which is a, which is a definite no-no. You know, most of these blades are pretty thin, pretty light. We have stones that are very, uh, very well suited for removing steel. So, I mean, if there's any doubt, now this is using my broad edge sharpener because it, it's the same amount of pressure whether you're doing it freehand or you're using the sharpener or whatnot. But in the sharpener, I tell people, put the socket broad head up, put it on, on in the sharpener, put the sharpener on the stone, get down to look at it from the side. Don't move the sharpener forward or back. Lay your hand on top and just slowly start adding pressure. Slowly start adding pressure. And eventually, as you push more and more and more, sooner or later, you'll see that blade flex. You know, what's sticking out of the clamp. And when you see it flex, that's like, three times more pressure than you should be using, mm-hmm. you know, which is harder to describe for someone that's freehanding, but, uh, but yeah, it, it does not require muscle at all, at all. I mean, yeah. ounces, not pounds, ounces, not pounds. And you had asked me earlier about uh, a sharpening routine. Do you want to run through that real quick? Uh, yeah, I, I think we we loosely covered it, but just if you would, I think it's a good way to close out the show. Just I handed you that handed you that broad head that's stuck in the ground. Just run through it. Yeah, so I'll chug it up in the broad edge armor, like you said, get the bleeders out of it, so because they're always in the way. Um, and then uh, <clears throat> on my let's say it, let's say it's dull, let's say uh, it's it's dull, dull, you know. It's damaged all. And then maybe not chips, but but or maybe even a few little chips or something like that. Extra core stone and just shove that thing forwards and backs like a Moshbox car. With, like I said, ounces, maybe one pound of pressure. But I'm definitely not leaning over that and putting my back into it, you know. And then just shove it forwards and backwards on a stone. Remember, we're trying to remove material so that we can reshape that edge back to a well-defined V. And at that stage of the uh, sharpening process, that is the goal, to remove material. So let's cut down on the time and take it off on the forward and the backstroke. Right? Yep. So I'm, I just have the forwards, backwards, forwards, backwards, maybe a minute, you know, no more than a minute. That's the other thing that everybody wants to go for. And 
they don't want to go. People end up going for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, whatever. And again, that goes back to you're using two courses. They're too fine of a spelling. But then, uh, so forwards, backwards, forwards, backwards, flip the clamp over, do the same on the other side, check for a burr. Now, that's, that's the other thing on that burr. We can, we can grind all the way through one side, just work one side until you get a burr on the other. Or you can work half from one side and half from the other. You know, and, and it ends up also taking less material off where I'll shove it back and forth, back and forth, boom, 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 then flip the head and back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I'm not necessarily counting strokes, but, you know, if I put 30 seconds on one side, I put 30 seconds on the other just to keep it. And I'm not watching the clock. Just it's not rocket science. It's really not. <laughs> and then, all right, so now we got a burr. Definitely check. We got a burr. We got a burr tip. We got a burr in the middle. We got a burr in the heel. Before I move to the next stone, I'm going to stop going back and forth, and I'm going to make a short series of forward-only strokes. And that is in, so that I can cut that burr off. So I would go, like, drop the nose and push the sharpener forward, one, and then do a wheelie. You know what I mean? Pick it up, come back, and drop it and push it forward and do five on one side and five on the other side and then maybe three and three. But I'm always going to finish with one. One pass forward, turn the clamp. One pass forward, turn the clamp. One pass forward, turn the clamp. Uh, the reason for that is once we have that burr, this is this is getting into a little bit more scientific part of it. But once you have a burr on a blade, anytime you pass a stone over over one side or the other, you are creating a burr on the other side. It's it's just a tiny little thing. So at the end, what we're trying to do. By going one stroke forward, turn it, one stroke forward, turn it, is take off the burr that the previous stroke put on without putting another one on. And so I'm backing off on the pressure. Yeah, everyone forward, turn it, forward, turn it, lighter, forward, turn it, forward, turn it, lighter, lighter, lighter. My last two strokes, man, I'm barely letting that stone touch the or that blade touch the stone. And it should plow hair off your arm right there, when, almost no matter how coarse your stone is. But I use that same two-step process with every single stone. The only thing is the first stone, you do you keep it up for as long as necessary to get your bear. On the other stones, you just blow through because you're just taking the scratches out. And then finish up with stropping, which is exactly the same except all backwards. And we don't go we don't go forward back on the strop because you'll immediately cut right into it. But yep. That's yeah. the process I'll be using with the pile I have down there to sharpen here heading into the season. And so, uh, Ron, thank you so much for your time today, folks. If you want to learn more uh, about the KME Sharpeners, just go to kmesharp.com, kmesharp.com. There's also a bunch of videos out there, YouTube and other places that show uh, this sharpening process at work. And just a reminder, but we're bringing you this show so that you're thinking about having your equipment in optical condition. And as Ron had said earlier, uh, having that super sharp edge is is critical. So, Ron, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, no no problem. Thank you for the opportunity. Nick, Mike, both of you, uh, if you ever need help sharpening, you got my number. <laughs> you know? uh, I, I teach as many people as I can, hoping that they will go out and teach as many people as they can. Mike, as I mentioned in the show, I'm, I do not consider myself someone that's good at sharpening things. I can eventually get there, but I make a lot of the mistakes that Ron talked about. I don't know. I just thought that that was, that was pretty helpful. And it was because I had the, 
the luxury, I guess I'll say, or the good fortune of when I bought my kit, it was the same, uh, not the exact same year, but it was the same event that you bought yours from him. And he actually, it was a downtime and he had the time to actually give me a demonstration in person, face to face. And that taught me a lot, especially about how you manipulate that edge to get your correct the or the most possibly sharp edge that you can with the type of steel and the type of you know blade that you have so that really jump started me and I, I that's why when you mentioned you know hey we should bring someone on to talk about sharpening like i know exactly who we should try and get yeah it was cool to talk to him and uh I got to see his demonstration in person all those years ago as well. I, obviously, it didn't help me a whole lot. I'm not sure I got any better. But, uh, you know, one thing that stuck with me, though, that he said, and this is an area that I'm sure I make a mistake, is he says that people don't get aggressive enough with that first stone. He likes to use a really coarse stone to start the process. And I think I'm, I'm guilty of going not coarse enough, and therefore I'm spending a half an hour on one side of a broadhead. Well, and it's always a choice, like you said, when you're getting started. So we're talking a blade that is either very nicked up or very damaged or very dull. But conversely, when I pull mine out in about every two weeks, I actually retouch up mine and I'm just using ceramic and stropping and I put it right back in and it goes back to razor sharp because it hasn't been really critically damaged like that. So every sharpening, you have to sit down and think your way through this process. What do I really need to do based on how sharp or dull this blade is yeah you said stropping too it reminded me what he said about just using cardboard you don't even need to have a fancy leather strop he actually prefers a piece of old cardboard to get that job done so again yeah, I'm gonna have to, i mean try i mean i have the leather strop but i'm gonna just try it just for the heck of it i mean you know if he said try it why not because i mean those things can get expensive i mean mine was like 32 bucks which isn't ridiculous but just for a piece of leather you only use a few times a year i guess it's kind of expensive yeah yeah, exactly. I thought you just probably just tore up a pair of those old pants you used to have. I don't have any leather pants. Never did, never <laughs> will. But thank you for sharing that. All right. Hey, on a more serious note, I mentioned in the intro, we talk a little bit about food plots. Uh, you said you're not quite in the ground yet. I'm going to talk about mine here. I put mine in two weeks ago. And um, I did, a, if you're following my social media, NDA Nick P, a shameless plug there on Instagram, uh, you saw I put out a little update video on my plots. I put out a full-length video, about seven minutes on the whole process I used, what I planted and whatnot. And then I followed that with my checkup, which I think is important, especially if you don't live right on your property, which I don't. So I went and did a checkup, and I've got really good germination, so I'm happy to report that. My weed kill was really good, so I'm happy to report that. And uh, one thing, though, that was bothering me is on my trail camera – I was getting images of a bunch of turkeys in my one plot, and it just happened to be where I planted oats. And so I know what those buggers were doing. They were in there pecking my oats out. And I'm like, all right, now, but I, I could see on the camera that I had some green, so I knew that the seed had germinated. And then I'm thinking, okay, what they're doing is they're pulling out that young uh, plant that's 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 just germinated. And so I was getting a little nervous. I'm like, all right, I, I hope they're not eating me out of house and home. So I literally went out there. And I always hold some extra seed back 
for areas that you may have missed, you see germination, you can go back in and reseed and try to fill in those gaps. If you're anal retentive like I am, I don't like to see these holes in my food plots, right? Right. And so, uh, but I'm happy to say, Mike, the turkeys are not ruining the plot. There was so much, you don't realize how much seed you're putting on the ground. And the reality is a handful of turkeys coming in are not going to wipe out your plot. But uh, I think things look, things are looking really good. Yeah, I was watching, I followed along with your videos. Um, and that's the one thing that you said about going back and retouching. And, and there's sometimes later in the season, if you're just not happy, or if you had some over browsing, there's no reason that you can't come in because the way that I set up my food plot, and I'm, I, the reason I'm turning to my side, you can't, you can see me this, but everyone else can't that's listening. But I mean, I have all my seed, you know, lined up, ready to go. And then I have, you know, here's what I have, like you worked up a plant, which I thought was nice that you showed your fertilizer um, and your seeding plan. And I actually have my, okay, if I can plant in this window, here's what's going in the ground. If I have to plant in this window, here's what's going in the ground. And then here's my, you know, literally last week of September, first week of October, I can put this down and I can still get something. And you, I mean, for me here, strangely enough, I've always had trouble with rain starting in October. Now this year we've, it's, it's better. We've got, we've had rain all summer long. We do not have a drought, which is good. First time in three years, but when the rain comes, it comes really hot and heavy. And then we hit high temperatures for nine, 10, 12 days. And then we might get a cloudy day. I mean, it's really strange. So, um, but I've had success, you know, knock on a wood like substance, I guess, knock on wood. Um, fighting that battle. So it's something that I just expect and I'm always prepared for. Yeah. And that's why I like going out and doing the evaluation and just seeing what's happening out there. If you're able to do that, I mean, you might live four hours away from where you're doing your plots. It's not as feasible, but, you know, get a, get a uh, wireless trail camera on there though. And that'll at least tell you something, which I think is helpful. Uh, a couple of takeaways. And I, I want to tell people, this is what I encourage you to do. I encourage you to experiment and do different things. And I do that and I've learned a whole bunch. So last year, my experiment was uh, going really cheap on not fertilizing like I should have. And I paid a price for that. And I also knew that I needed to get some lime down, which I didn't do before last year. And I paid a price for that. I still had plots and they still look good and they still attracted deer, but they did not come close to reaching their potential. The plants never really developed like they should. And this year, I can tell you, because I fertilized and because I limed this year, uh, back in the spring, germination was quicker and the plants are coming up and I think they'll be able to outpace the browse that's going on. So there's that's number one, don't go cheap <laughs> if you can help it. Uh, number two, uh, I, this year, my experiment was I planted two thirds of my stuff using my Ferminator, which was just a light disc behind. I didn't do any any heavy disking, I didn't get down to bare earth. I, I literally seeded into the high grass and then I went over it. Uh, uh, actually, I seeded into the high grass with my Ferminator on about two thirds. And then another area I just broadcast, uh, surface, surface applied and did not use the Ferminator. And so far, I can tell you that germination has been faster and more significant where I did use the machine. Uh, however, I'm not saying that because you have to have a machine. What I'm saying is germination is also happening in those other plots. It's just taken a little bit longer, I think, for that seed to reach the ground. And so you can win both ways. The big take home for me, though, is you do not have to go to bare soil to have a successful planting. 
and I may never go to bare soil again, Mike, based on what I've seen from this year. So that's been my big learning uh, point this year. Yeah. And the one thing I'll tell you is, you know, minimal tillage, no tillage, low tillage um, is kind of like the, the in thing right now because of soil health, soil conservation, et cetera, carbon release, et cetera. But um, at the end of the day, there might be sometimes that you have to take a plot back to ground zero, which I just had to do for one of mine this year. It was seven years old and I was getting too many woody plants in there with minimal tillage. And so I had to set it back and that's going to set the soil back. But at the end of the day, it's, um, it's a, the soil when I took the composition of it was better than when I started. So, um, if you need to set it back, it's not literally the end of the world. Uh, no one's going to, you know, literally call you out for that. Some people might, if you put a lot of stuff on social media, but, but realizing that if you're doing good best practices for soil, soil conservation to kind of reset might be needed so that you can keep addressing your goals and don't feel bad about that. So um, just wanted to throw that out there. Not that I'm trying to, you know, explain my point. I mean, I'll do whatever I want because I'm the one that pays the note on this place. But if you're doing it with <laughs> good science, you know, with good science and, and good intentions in mind, you know, it it actually is fine. Yeah, I think what you're, what you're the point you're making is that there are many different techniques to use. And just because I'm satisfied with what I did this year, I've used all the others too. I mean, fire, we didn't even get into fire. Fire is a really good one. Uh, full tillage can work. Certainly it's been done since the beginning of time, no tillage. There's just a lot of different options. And so, yeah, be aware of what's going on in your soil, do what's best for you. I'll continue to keep people posted. Hey, one other thing I want to mention on food plots before we get to some NDA announcements, um, structure in your plot. And what I mean by that is trees, shrubs, anything, they are critically important. I have seen it, in in this in the one food plot I'm thinking of here, uh, I have uh, a, sh a shrub uh, tree out that's in the plot that I strategically left in there. And the amount of animal traffic that comes that uses that tree to walk by, as opposed to just being out in the wide open in the middle of the plot, is incredible. And, and I can tell you, just over the last two weeks, Mike, I've had uh, deer, turkeys, bobcats, coyotes, bears, and raccoons utilize that one little piece of structure in my plot. So if you're a bass fisherman, trout fisherman, or whatever, you know, get around docks, get around down trees, whatever, get to that structure. Well, you know, terrestrial species really prefer that as well. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's just, we know that. I mean, going back to like this time of year, a lot of people are getting mouse traps or mice coming into the house as the temperature starts to fall, you know, and where do you put them? Along edges and corners, you know, like it's one of those things deer follow structure. I mean, everyone says like they're a creature of edge. Well, they also, they key on structures. Yes, absolutely. That's a great example. Mousetraps. And you might, and your plan is to get seed in the ground soon then. I mean, I, I could actually, I mean, I have a good amount of rain coming tonight. I just need to look at how, what the temperature is going to be. Um, but there's the, there's a chance I might do one plot today, maybe two and um, leave the other three for when I have that confidence of, okay, I have multiple days of rain, clouds, and then the appropriate temperatures with a warm up and then a break and a return to, you know, make sure that those young seas don't get scalded. Yeah. 
that's the other thing we didn't mention and I'll close out the food plot discussion on this is that the other thing you can experiment is time of year that you plant and you're getting this, you're listening to the show on the 30th of August. It's not too late. And in some places in the country, it's still probably too early. Okay. It's just, you got to know your climate. You got to know where you live. You got to know what species you're trying to plant, what you're trying to accomplish. You can also experiment with that a little bit. Uh, maybe if you have multiple plots, you plant, plant a couple early and you plant some later. You also don't want to have it all, you know, nice and beautiful and the deer come and eat it all. And then here comes the first day of deer season and your plot's already gone. So timing is, timing can be important. So, all right, folks, a few NDA announcements and we'll call it a show for today. Uh, so we have, uh, I mentioned the Furminator, our very popular, one of our most popular sweepstakes that we do every year. The Furminator sweepstakes is coming up later this week. So pay attention to that. Um, it is a, it's a really great tool, like I said, that I've used and uh, purchased uh, three years ago, and I'm glad I have it. Uh, another very cool sweepstakes that's coming. I can't give you any details just yet, but around Labor Day, which is also right around the corner, we got a cool one coming up that includes Quiet Cat, Tethered, and First Light. So that's coming up. Be on the lookout for that. And also on the content front, we have so much great content available to you right now, uh, especially as we begin hunting seasons. Uh, so first is our, our sister podcast, Deer Season 365. Uh, Brian just had Travis T-Bone Turner on there. He's talking about getting your bow ready uh, and yourself ready for the upcoming hunting season. Uh, so check that out. Uh, Lindsey Thomas Jr. just put one out. It's a, it's a good one that we all should pay attention to. He talks about how to not throw your back out. <laughs> Uh, and injure yourself trying to get ready for deer season. He tells a story about uh, setting up ladder stands by himself, uh, which I think is a good cautionary tale on why you shouldn't do that. He also, I want to mention, he was just a guest on the Son of a Blitch podcast. That's B-L-I-T-C-H, to be clear. Um, little play on words there. Uh, check that out. Uh, they mentioned us and had Lindsay on the show. They got a good show there, so check them out. Uh, ben Westfall just put out an article on uh, bachelor groups that just came out in our newsletter that was uh, from last week. Uh, very cool. It's definitely pertinent to this time of year as bachelor groups begin to break up and we have uh, Velvet Shed. And also for the gun hunters out there, how to quickly bore sight a rifle with minimal equipment. Uh, Walter Stroman put that together for us. So those are just the, that's just a sampling of the articles that you can go out and get right now. And I'll just remind you, if you're not already, please consider becoming a member. If you're a premium member, you get a bunch of benefits. Uh, for example, a bunch of discounts on some really cool products from our from our corporate sponsors. You need a new pack, you're going to get 30% off at Alps Outdoors, for example, just by being a premium member. So that's something to consider. And if you're not ready to be a premium member, you can join for free or you can go all the way up to becoming a life member. And if you do that right now, the promo is you're going to get a Howa bolt action rifle in either 308 or 6.5 Creedmoor. So there's no better time to join the NDA than right now. We do really appreciate you listening, folks. Happy hunting if you're starting your seasons and you're already out there heading into September. We wish you luck. Send us your pictures, send us your stories. And remember, next episode is Ask NDA Anything. So send us your questions to nick at deerassociation.com. National Deer Association, where we are united for deer. Mm -hmm.